You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. definitely a a different morning. Uh, If you're here for the first time, um, we're glad that you're here and hope you uh, witnessed the the love that we really have, that we really are a family. We care deeply about each other and um, we're glad that you're here visiting with us. Uh, We are starting a new series on the the topic of prayer and so I'll do my best to to still share with the same uh, conviction as best I can and just trust that God will be with us in the process. Um, Yeah. I'm going to invite Tiffany to come. She's going to read our scripture. That's going to be kind of the main scripture for us this morning. So I'd ask that you would stand in honor of God's word if you're able to. And let's hear from the scripture, hear from the Lord today. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Second Chronicles 7, 11 through 16. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can put on that speaker over there, actually. Cool. Thanks. Well, in recent days or recent months or recent years, Have you ever had a sense that God was, as the scripture said, uh, shutting up the heavens, or there are locusts that were devouring the land, or there's a plague among the people? Have you felt that any time recently? Me, I'm just thinking that just just in in this last week or two, here's some of the things that to me feel like shut heavens, like locusts devouring, like the plague among the people. We know the video that was just released of uh, Tyree Nichols being killed by police officers. Had two mass shootings in the last two weeks. 39 mass shootings since the start of 2023. Uh, Riots and protests in Atlanta, stirred up by people outside of Atlanta. Uh, The deadliest airstrike in Ukraine that killed civilians. And now we find out that there's been corruption with the Ukrainians officials and who's been getting the money that they've been getting sent from all those different places. The storming of the Brazilian uh, Congress building uh, classified documents that just seem to pop up everywhere and the hypocrisy of both sides uh, pointing fingers at each other. Uh, M&M candies taking on gender and then suddenly taking their gender back. Uh, Google, Meta, all these tech companies firing 130,000 workers to start this next year, triggering thoughts of a recession. That's just in the last t- two weeks, right? To me, it feels like shut heavens, feels like locusts devouring, feels like a plague on our people, or, or to get more personally thinking here about in Austin, that we've said this many times before that in the recent survey, 60% of people in Austin say that they're lonely. The continued mental health in our city, the continued problems that we have with people, the 
uh, gentrification that's taking place so rapidly uh, within our city, the fact that people can't find places to live affordably in our city. There's the progressive indoctrination of, of kids in schools. There's more than 1,200 kids right now in the foster care system in our city. About 45 to 60 are added uh, every single month. Or the vast number of refugees that are entering our city alone or just take the flat-out idolatries of our city. It's wealth, it's greed, it's materialism, sex, entertainment, addictions, and more. The heavens seem shut. It seems like there's locusts that are devouring, that there's a plague on our people. And it's happening even within the church. Think, too, that the, the fastest-growing religious group in, in, our, in our city right now is what they call nuns, people that claim no religion. Uh, the moral failure of many pastors and Christian leaders uh, some churches becoming very progressive and then becoming unorthodox. Other churches becoming very political and then becoming Christian nationalists. Pastors resigning right now at a record rate. And the increased number of churches that have closed their doors. And the steep decline in church attendance since the start of the, since the, the end of COVID. Or if there is an end to COVID, whatever we would deem the end of COVID. Such things to me feel like shut heavens, locust devouring, and a plague on our people. Do you feel that? Do you feel that this week? you feel that in seasons of time? Well, the passage that we're looking at today tells us not only to expect that that would happen, but it tells us exactly what to do when we feel that, exactly what to do. The passage that Tiffany read is one at the very height of Israel's uh, spiritual well-being, like the very height, a uh, spiritual high of all highs. Because under King Solomon, that was the wealthiest that they had ever been, the most influenced that had ever been. And on this very day, the passage that we read, the temple was dedicated. This enormous temple was dedicated. Their influence in the land and their influence telling people about their God was at the height that it had ever been. Yet even then, God speaks to Solomon in the cover of night, comes to him and tells him, it's not always going to be that way. Because God knew in his sovereignty the propensity of people's hearts, and they knew that there was going to be times of great spiritual highs, and there were going to be times of great, great spiritual decline in the generations that would come after him. And so he lays out for them this promise. God tells Solomon, here's what I'm going to do. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin. I'll heal their land. We look around and we see shut doors. We look around and we see locusts devouring. We look around and we see the plague on our people. What are we to do? It's right there. We're to call upon God. We're to repent and pray. We don't need to wage a culture war, try to petition Congress. We don't need to isolate or retreat into a Christian bubble. We don't need bigger and better ministry ideas to try to fix the problem. What we need to do is repent and we need to pray. And notice who it's calling to repent. If my people this isn't a call like for the world out there and we just need to get them to conform to our ways. It's we, the people of God, who need to repent. We are the ones responsible for the shut doors, for the plagues, for the locusts. We're the ones that need to repent. Very noted uh, Old Testament scholar Walter Kaiser, I heard him teach one time, and he believed that this whole passage right here, the Second Chronicles 714 passage, is actually like a template that records the process of the spiritual decline and spiritual revivals that would take place. And he would say that this passage in, in Second Chronicles actually is like a template through the rest of the book as you see one king and one generation and one king and one generation and the ups and downs that flows. Each time, the ups come when people repent and when they pray. 
Here's what he wrote about 2 Chronicles 7, 14. God's reply to Solomon's petition in 2 Chronicles 7 was put in such a formulaic terms that this response would uh, serve forever as the basis for true revival and renewal to any people in any nation at any time. The heart of this text, a central text in the gallery of revival text was verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. Note that my people are identified as an appositional clause who are called by my name. Since the clause is referred as both the Old Testament and the New Testament for all believers, the scope of this promise goes far beyond Israel to include all believers at all times. It's his conviction that this is not just a promise that was made while it was made to Solomon in a particular time and it was made to a people of Israel, that this is actually a promise for all generations. And we know that's true because we see it in the actual word of God played out, but we also know it's true because we can look around the world and in church history, we see the same thing time and time again. One more quote from Kaiser. He says, each of the 16 revivals in the Bible have very distinctive characteristics. Most of them began with just one or two individuals who saw a need for a heavenly visitation. All of them were addressed in the first place to the body of believers. In fact, five out of the seven churches addressed in the book of Revelation were told to repent and return to God. Therefore, revivals are definitely aimed at the believing church and not the unsaved. The purpose of these revivals is to call the church back to a new hearing and a new responding to the word of God. It must involve forsaking sin confession of that sin and a deep desire to reverse the pattern of spiritual declination and apostasy that's begun to typify the ministry either locally, regionally, or nationally. And so I want to say that this is true in biblical history, it's true in church history, that the path to revival is always the same. It's always preceded by deep yearning and broken and repentant and persistent and humble prayer. That's what we need in our city, and that's what we're calling us to do as a church in this next season, and really beyond just this season. Because that's God's providential purpose in prayer. He uses our prayers and our humility and our repentance to literally change the world. God's providential purpose in prayer is to change the world. My favorite definition uh, for prayer is actually this, that that, uh, participating in the sovereignty of God. You like that definition? That's really what it is. That's participating in the sovereignty of God. That's the joy that God invites us into, his purposes in the world and the way that we get to be a part of it. A major way is through prayer. In fact, one person went so far as to say that God does nothing except an answer to prayer. I don't think that that's necessarily theologically true, but I like the premise of it because I've seen it to be true that usually when God wants to do something, what he does is he invites his people to start praying. And then in a very real way, then their prayers are what affects what God does in the world. It's not necessarily true that God does nothing except in response to prayer, but I think it's very true that God delights to use his people and use the prayers of his people to do what he wants to do in the world. Or maybe you've heard the phrase, prayer works. Well, kind of inaccurate, because prayer doesn't work. It's God that it's work. Prayer doesn't work. God's the one that it's work, but he uses the prayers of his people to accomplish his work. That's the sovereignty of God using people like you and me to affect change in the entire world. That's what he's inviting us into when we pray, particularly when we pray 2 Chronicles 17, where we humble ourselves and pray and we seek God's face and we turn from our wicked ways. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, I told you that in the Old Testament, this happens time and time again, but one of my favorites is the story of King King Josiah. Josiah was about 300 years after this 
promise was given to Solomon. So 300 years later, after many generations, up and down, spiritual highs, spiritual lows, revivals, then spiritual decline, Josiah walks out of the scene. He was eight years old when he became king. And he most notably followed two of the worst kings in Israel's history. Manasseh, his grandfather, reigned for 55 years, was the worst king in, in Judah's history. In fact, here's how the summary of Manasseh's life was. It says, Manasseh led, led Judah and all the people of Jerusalem astray. So they did more evil than any of the nations the Lord had destroyed before the, before the Israelites. Not a sentence you want to have describe your life, right? 55 years of this man. Then his son takes over after him and he's killed just two years into his reign. So 57 years of spiritual decline until Josiah walks on the scene as an eight-year-old and is named king. But look what we hear about Josiah's life. Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. A 16-year-old. A 16-year-old who starts to seek God. And what does it mean that he sought God? We're gonna see what plays out in his life. It meant that he prayed, that he was coming to God and he was praying. He was seeing the spiritual decline of his people. He saw the shut heavens. He saw the plagues on the people. He saw the, the uh, locusts and what they had devoured and what they'd eaten. And in the midst of it, his heart gets broken and he humbles himself and he repents. And look what God does with a king that's willing to seek God that way. We know about what he prayed about because when he was age 20, we read this about him. In the 12th year, uh, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of their high places, Asherah poles and idols. Under his direction, the altars of Baals were torn down, cut to pieces. The incense and altars were above them, smashed the Asherah poles and all the idols. If you were to go on to continue to read this whole chapter, he actually is going like from town to town and tearing things down, all the things that he knew were against the ways of God. And he tears them and he burns them to the ground, getting rid of all the sin and all the idolatry that he can, the things that burned his heart and made him humble himself and repent and pray. And not only does he tear things down, then he actually gets a heart to actually start to build things up because one of the things that was torn down was the very temple where Solomon was given that promise. In the eighth year of Josiah's reign to purify the land and the temple, he sent these guys with hard names to pronounce to repair the temple of the Lord their God. See, not only did he just want to see all the idolatry and the stuff out there and tear it down, he wanted to build up. He said, I have a whole new vision. And so what he does is he actually commissions these guys. He raises a bunch of money and commissions these great artisans, these great workers and laborers to go start cleaning out the temple so that they can restore the worship back to the way that it was meant to be, back to the way that it was meant to be as it was at the spiritual high in Solomon's time. And one of the things that they find that's very tragic when they're, they're cleaning out the temple, they actually find the book of the law. And when they find the book of the law, which had been buried and buried in dust and buried in rubble, and they finally bring it to Josiah and read it to him. They start to read it to him. And he's so touched by it that he rips his clothes. He starts crying out to God because when they start reading it, he realizes just how far they've fallen. All the ways of God that they've, that they've rejected over these many, many decades. And he starts to weep. He calls some of his advisors around him and he says to the advisors, I want you guys to go talk to the prophetess Hulda and ask her what we're supposed to do now that we've realized how far we've strayed from God now that we have the book of the law. And Hulda talks to the men and says, tell Josiah this. Tell King Josiah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, 
This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God when you heard what he spoke against this place and this people. And because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence, I've heard you, declares the Lord. And so this revival that had begun under Josiah gets to continue because he continues to live with a constant posture of prayer and repentance. He repented. And God says through the prophetess, like, this is why this revival can keep happening because you humbled yourself and you prayed and you cried out. And then you read one of the greatest parts of this whole story as the temple finally gets rebuilt and they finally gather all the people. They start instituting the sacrifices again and they call back the people that David had set up to do 24-7 worship and prayer in the temple. And that day, they celebrate the Passover for the first time in at least 57 years. And here's what we read about that day. The Passover had not been observed like this in all Israel since the days of the prophet Samuel. And none of the kings of Israel had ever celebrated such a Passover as did Josiah with the priests, the Levites, and Judah and Israel and all the people of Jerusalem. This Passover was celebrated on the 18th year of Josiah's reign. In 10 years of intercession, from 16 to 26, 10 years of fervent prayer, repentance, and coming before God changed an entire nation, changed an entire people. And they have the greatest worship service that could be celebrated in generations and generations at that Passover. So I want to ask, can God do it again? Can he do it again today? The answer is yes. If we humble ourselves and we pray and we seek God's face and we turn from our wicked ways. And that's what we're calling us to do in this season as a church. That was a story through the Old Testament. I said that... uh, quoting from Dr. Kaiser, that Dr. Kaiser believes that this is a template that wasn't just a promise for Israel because it gets played out throughout history and it's been the template that you could look into church history and see. There's even places right now all over the world where are experiencing immense revivals right now. But one of my favorites in history is what's known as the Layman's Prayer Revival. This took place in 1957, but in, in 1950s in New York City, one of the tragic things that happened is a lot of the churches that were, that were prosperous started moving out of central, not central Austin, central Manhattan, and started moving to the northern suburbs. And so it became that in, this, in the heart of the city, there was very little Christian presence and very little places of worship. But there was one small church on Fulton Street, and the small church on Fulton Street didn't have a pastor, so they decided they were going to call this guy out of the marketplace into the, being their pastor, Jeremiah Lanfear was his name. And Jeremiah Lanfear had no theological training, but he loved God, he prayed, and he had a heart for evangelism, and he wanted to see that city changed. He was known to go to the different businesses, to the different public transit spots, even to different schools, and pass out tracts. He did that for a long time and saw no fruit from his work. And so he just went back to the drawing board, so to speak, and said, well, I'm just going to start to pray. And so he decided he was going to have a weekly prayer meeting on Wednesdays, and he was going to do it during the noon hour because that time all the businessmen took, had the same noon hour, and he thought maybe some of them would join him for prayer in his church building. Well, he put out a little flyer and started posting them everywhere, hoping this might draw some people's interest. The flyer actually said, Wednesday prayer meeting from 12 to 1. Stop 5, 10, or 20 minutes or the whole time as your time admits. Well, September 23rd, 1957, he has that very first prayer meeting. And he's actually alone for the first 30 minutes of it until finally one person walks in and prays. The next week, there were 20. The next week, there were 40. A month later, they moved from doing it from every, once a week to doing it every single day. And in the next four or five months, 
they had so much room, they had to fill out all the other churches in the city that were praying at noon. And then it started popping up in different cities around the nations, known now as the layman's prayer movement. Just a regular guy who felt called to pray and called his church to pray and his city to pray. What was unique about this is this all took place during the panic of, of 1857. That's what was known as like a big uh, depression that happened financially. And so all these business people and their idolatry of wealth in the heart of the city now were in a broken place and they came to these churches to pray and to seek God. And Jaden Orr, the noted historian of revivals, estimates that in between 1957 and 1958, one million people came to faith in Jesus during that period. That would be 3% of the population at that time. You know what 3% of the population is for us in the United States today? 10 million. Could God do it again? Could he do it again? Will we repent? Will we pray? Will we seek God's face and turn from all of our wicked ways? He can. He can do it again. He's doing it in other places all around the world. And that's what we're calling the church to do. We're calling us to come together both personally and corporately to begin contending with God to do a great work of revival. And we're calling on us all to seek God for ways that we all individually and corporately as a body need to repent and forsake our other ways and seek after God. That's what we're calling us to do. And God willing, he's sovereign, he's, he's over. We don't know all the exact purposes of God, but God willing, we will experience a revival just like that. That's what we're gonna contend for. But I mean to tell you, even if we don't, even if we don't see it, we're gonna get to experience Jesus either way. And that way it's worth it because as much as the, the providence purpose of God in, in prayer is to change the world, God also has a secret purpose in prayer. And God's secret purpose in prayer is actually to change you. His secret purpose in prayer is to change both you and me. And I can't end this message without telling you that this is the, the, the very thing that you need to sustain a continued prayer movement to try to pray and contend for God to bring revival to our land. It cannot be sustained unless you keep your eyes equally not on just the prize of seeing God move in that way, but knowing that even if he doesn't, Jesus is better. Even if he doesn't, the change that you're going to experience, the connection with God that you're going to have is going to be worth it either way. Because that's God's secret purpose in prayer. As much as there's providence and we participate in his work in the world, it's also a secret way that God actually works in you and me. There's three things that he does when we pray. He deepens our relationship with him, what Midtown we call being with Jesus. He develops our character into Christ, what we call becoming like Jesus. And actually, he ends up tricking us a bit and making us an answer to our own prayer because as we pray, we begin to do the things that Jesus did. When it comes to deepening our relationships, when we live a life of repentance and prayer, a deeper relationship with Jesus, will, with Jesus will follow. And if that's the only thing that we get, then by gosh, it's worth it because we want a relationship with him. We want all of you guys to grow in your relationship with him, that you would know him more, that you would feel him more, that you would hear from him more. So let's humbly set our purpose on praying, knowing that if all God does is deepen our relationship with him, then that's worth it. And in God's secret purpose in prayer, what he does through our prayers is he actually shapes us into being more like Christ himself. I've seen this happen so many times in my life. This is what happens. You start praying for your enemies, and guess what? Your heart toward them changes. You start coming to God and giving him your anxieties, and you start experiencing his peace. You start praying for your neighbors, and all of a sudden you have a heart to tell them about Jesus. You start confessing your sins, and you find yourself growing stronger to recognize and resist temptation in your life. 
You start to worship God and pray prayers of worship and keep your eyes on him. And all of a sudden, you start to care more about the things that God cares about than you did before. When you intercede for others, you find yourself becoming more and more selfless because others are always on your mind. And when you pray for revival out here, what you're gonna experience is revival in here. If all we get out of contending and praying for God to move in our city in this way is God changing us, then that's great. That's the reward. You've heard us say that our big prayer is in Austin as it is in heaven. But we also said the only way that Austin becomes more like heaven is when we become more like Jesus. And I'm telling you that prayer is one of the ways that we become more like Jesus because he will shape your heart and make you more like him. And that's ultimately what we need if we wanna see Austin become more like heaven, which means that the tricky way that Jesus uses, that God uses prayer in our lives is that he often makes us become an answer to our own prayers. Have you experienced that before? One of the more common ways that I've experienced it is when I start to pray. For, for, since I came to faith early on in my faith, uh, I'm very thankful for the guy who led me to faith and discipled me for the next three years. One of the things that he taught me to do was to start to make a list of, I don't know why he said 10, but he, that's what he said. He said, make a list of 10 people who aren't yet following Jesus in your life and start praying for them regularly, praying that God will work in their life, may, may pray that God will stir up curiosity, pray that God would experience, they would experience God's love and they'd know him like you do. And so I've kind of had that as a habit but one of the things I've found that I've done all over these years is what happens is I start praying for my friends and praying that they would have curiosity or that, that God would show himself to them in a way that would make them see how much he loves them. And then you know what happens? It ends up that I'm the one that ends up doing that. <laughs> it's like, God, you tricked me. <laughs> like I was praying for you to do this and now I'm the one that's becoming an answer to my own prayers. But that's how prayer works and the secret purposes of God. He's gonna use you to be an answer to the very things that you're asking for. As you deepen your relationship with him, as you become more Christ-like, you're gonna find yourself being an answer to so many of your own prayers. It's not really a trick. You think about it. You start praying for kids in foster care. Keep doing it and you'll find yourself pretty soon adopting someone. Start praying for a classmate who seems depressed and you're gonna find yourself being the one that gives them hope and comes alongside them. Start praying for the homeless in your city and you're gonna find that you're gonna start a ministry to start serving the homeless or start praying for prisoners or kids in the juvenile system. You're gonna find out that you're gonna be bent toward prison ministry. Start praying for refugees and you're gonna take some in to your home. Start praying for unreached people groups all around the world and you're gonna find your heart might be inclined toward missions. Because as you pray, God's gonna shape you He's gonna use his secret purpose in your life and that secret purpose ultimately is the ends that leads to his providential purpose in prayer of changing the world. He starts by changing you. Each time that you set aside time to pray during these 28 days that we're gonna pray, each time that you gather weekly or more often with others to pray together as a group, you can be confident that God's changing you and he's gonna change you so you can be part of his providential purpose in the world by your prayers being answered. And so to that end, I wanna cast vision real briefly for what we're doing together as a church. Before I do, I wanna acknowledge what always is an elephant in the room when it comes to prayer. And that elephant in the room is that I bet everyone here feels like you're not sufficient at prayer. <laughs> acknowledge that, I am too. Try giving a message on it, it's not very fun. Because <laughs> uh, it's convicting. Because like you, you know, when we pray, um, I, I, I find that I'm sometimes distracted. I find that sometimes I'm bored. I find that sometimes I don't really know what to say or I find sometimes that I'm not confident that God heard me or sometimes I didn't feel something. Maybe I expected to feel something and I didn't or sometimes I just feel kind of ashamed before God. 
I could go on and you could list many other reasons. So I just want to kind of acknowledge that I know that this whole topic of prayer can be challenging. But I want to say one of the things I'm most excited about what, what we're going to do is we're going to actually lead people in prayer that just as encourages everyone just to take their next step in prayer. We all can take a next step. No matter where you are in your, your prayer life with God, we're going to try to create an opportunity for everyone just to take the next step. In fact, we're actually um, using kind of a template through a book called The Armchair Mystic uh, by Mark Thibodeau. And in that book, he, tries, he describes like four different types of prayer. And it's not that these four types of prayer are necessarily progressive, like they're all parts of prayer that we should adopt into our lives. But in, a, in one way, they're kind of the ways that you actually grow in prayer as you develop your prayer life. And you can circle back and do all of them. But generally speaking, this is the way that you grow. And so we're gonna talk about what we call talking to God. That's when maybe you don't even have your own words to say, but you actually rely on the words or prayers of others and learn to pray the words of others, things like the Lord's Prayer. Then we're gonna talk about talking with God. As you progress in your prayer life, you begin now not just to be able to pray other people's prayers, but you, you learn how to use your own language and speak with God, bringing to him your gratitude or your laments or your petitions. And then as you grow in prayer, you can actually get to where you listen to God. Instead of a one-way conversation, it becomes to be a two-way conversation where you not only present your request, but you hear from him. And the fourth progression in prayer would be where you're just content being with God. Maybe you don't even say anything, but you just, you just adore him and sit with him and you have a, a, a great sense of his presence in your life and your prayer is just being with God. And so over the next four weeks, those, that's what we're gonna tackle. We're gonna tackle those topics in our sermons and then the accompanying part that I'm really excited about is we're gonna have a prayer guide with you that every, for, for you. And so every week, you're gonna get to try one of these practices of talking to God, of talking with God, of listening to God and being with God. And so we're all gonna have an opportunity to grow in prayer together. And then in our Midtown communities throughout the week, this will be the source of our conversation and we'll be talking to each other about our experiences that we have with that. I wanna close by saying one more thing and we're gonna pass these out and give you just a little bit more vision toward what we're doing with that. But I wanna be really clear on one thing before, we, before I end. And that one thing is this is not something that we're doing just for these five weeks. We're, every three times a year, we try to take on a very particular practice of Jesus. And now we're choosing that for this season, we're gonna take on the practice of prayer just for these five weeks. We do this three times a year. But we're saying that we're not just wanting to practice this for a season and then it's over four weeks later. I want you to get that what we're actually trying to do right now is we're trying to help our church grow to become a praying church where prayer is who we are, it's what we do, that we continue past this four-week period. This is who we're gonna become. And to that end, we're gonna start challenging our church to do three things. To personally pray daily for God to move in our city like I've described and like we've heard in these stories. Personally do that daily. And then weekly to gather with others. You can start your own prayer meeting or you can come to one of the three that we're starting to set up as a church. We're gonna start one that's 12.15 on Tuesdays that you can come pray with our staff team because that's when we pray together. That'll be here at this building. We're starting Sunday mornings at 9.15 here in the fellowship hall. And then there's a Zoom prayer time Mondays at seven. And so we invite you to come weekly to pray with those or start your own, but to pray weekly with other people, personally, daily, weekly with others. And then once a month, we're gonna call everyone to fast and to pray. And we're gonna have a concert of prayer, a whole night of united prayer and worship every month in this building. And so while we press into it these, for these four weeks, I wanna be really clear that this is something that we are aiming to do for our church for the foreseeable future until Jesus comes back. We want to pray and contend and pray Second Chronicles 714 kind of prayers for us and for our city. 
and want to invite you into that. Let me close us in prayer here and move us to communion, and we'll continue to worship and seek God together. God, we ask that you would uh, bring conviction on our hearts to pray these Second Chronicles 7.14 kind of prayers, and not just to pray the prayers, but to, but to live them, to be them. I pray, God, that you would humble us. I pray that you would cause us to seek your face. I pray that we would grow in prayer and that we would turn from all of our wicked ways, beginning with us, beginning with the church, God. As we pray together in this season, God, accomplish your secret purpose in prayer in changing us. And through that, God, accomplish your providential purpose in prayer of changing our city and the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven.